Well, guys, we've been in a series about the book of 1 Corinthians, and the underlying uh, theme through the entirety of the book is how the gospel impacts every area of life. Paul had planted this church in Corinth. Acts 18 tells us the story. He had gone there, spent a year and a half there, raised up a strong church. But here were all of these brand new believers who were once pagans trying now to navigate living this new life that we've been called to in Christ. What did it mean in real time? How did we live this out? Paul had left the church to go on his missionary journeys, and then he received notification. Paul, there's problems back in the church at Corinth. So Paul sat down to write this letter to address the problems that were going on there. And why this is so relevant to us is because the problems that they were struggling with in the first century are the same things we still deal with in the 21st century. And Paul was brilliant because he, in this letter, defines the problem and then he asks everybody to view the problem in light of the gospel. In other words, he asked the church to look at life through a new lens. Don't look at the way you were raised or the culture you were brought up in. Now I'm asking you, he's, and I've used this illustration through the course of this series, to put on gospel glasses, to see things from a different way, a different point of view. Because the gospel impacts every aspect of life. So the problem is you've been looking at it the way you were raised. You've been looking at it the way you always did, but now. That's why Paul began with the gospel. He said, you now in Christ are a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Now what Jesus has done in you and is continuing to do through you is now the new reality that we're to live out of. So he's asking them all to say, listen, this is the situation. Now let's look at it in light of the gospel. So today, the subject that we're going to talk about is freedom. Because what the Christian church was struggling with in Corinth is what does Christian freedom really look like? Now think about this with me for a moment. What is freedom? We have debated this. It's been talked about even in our nation. What is freedom? Is freedom the ability to do whatever I want, when I want, with who I want, you know, blah, 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 all the other things, right? Is that freedom? Let me put it on a more simplified level. Are we free in America to drive wherever we want? Are we not? But aren't there limits? Why do we paint a yellow line down the middle of the road? Because we know that freedom without boundaries doesn't lead to freedom but anarchy. But here's the idea. The idea of Christian freedom, what does it mean to be free in Christ? Because we've learned that the gospel is the announcement of the kingdom. That Jesus came bringing the kingdom. He is the king. And he invites us all to come into the kingdom. He paid the price so that we could enter freely. But now in the kingdom, what does it mean to live in freedom? What does it mean to be free in Christ? And so in essence, the gospel gives us the understanding that before Jesus died on the cross... The people of God lived under a very detailed and specific law. But now Jesus, through his death, Jesus freed us from the law of sin and death. Now that, that in Christ, Jesus gave us the ability by the Spirit to be born again. That God would write his law on our hearts. That now the Spirit would empower us to be able to follow Christ, to serve Christ, to be able to do the things of God as we were created by God to do. Because the moral law that people were under before, the truth is the Old Testament law was a compass that guided people, but it did not have the ability to free them. 
save them and give them the liberty that their hearts longed for. That's why it pointed to the need of a savior. That's why it pointed to the reality. And Jesus came and through his sacrificial death, he fully fulfilled all the requirements that the Mosaic law ever provided for humanity. And he gave a gift. See, righteousness in the gospel is a gift. It gives us the ability to live the life we were created to live because now, born again, we have a new nature. We can live righteously because the greater one lives within us. The Spirit has come to empower us. Now, we can live to please him. We can live to do the will of God. That's what Christian freedom is all about. Paul said that the Old Testament law was a yoke of slavery, which amazes me that why certain Christians coming to Christ would ever seek to live and go back underneath the law of Moses. Why would we ever trump to do that? But see, religious Christianity is the attempt to say that now I'm now constrained by the law of Moses. Now I'm trying to live this, and it creates confusion. Listen to me. If you've ever been under this situation, the idea is this. Now, in Christ, what was unable for people to fulfill, we are now freed from because Jesus fulfilled it in its entirety. But religious Christianity is a way of trying to live legalistically in an attempt to please God. But the problem with that is that it creates not freedom, it creates, listen to me, self-righteousness. It tends to look down on other people, judge yourself and others by what you do or don't do. But no, we've been liberated from that in Christ. Now, we have been given the freedom to be able to do what we were created by God to do. So in essence, is then Christian freedom a hall pass? Or let me say that differently. Is it a license to sin? No, now in Christ, I'm dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. Now what Jesus gave his life to free me from, it's like God in the Old Testament came into Egypt and took the people of Israel out of slavery to Egyptian bondage, okay? And being freed as a people, they weren't to return to Egypt back into slavery, although some were tempted to. And now what we must recognize is now what we've been freed from to live for Christ is not to want to go back to something that never promoted freedom, never gave us what we wanted. It caused us to be slaves indeed to things that controlled us. And now, in Christ, we've been freed. Now in Christ, we have the ability to live for Christ, to accomplish the will of God. See, when Jesus showed up on the scene, Jesus came to bring something brand new, something the world never saw before. Jesus came to bring a new covenant, a new relationship between God and man. And like all covenants, there are conditions within it. But Jesus brought man back to the simplicity of the garden. In essence, what? Listen to me. In the Garden of Eden, man was more free than any other time beside Christ. Because why? In the garden, God said, everything I have given you authority over the works of my hands. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moves. And so there was maximum freedom, and listen, one command. Only one command. And people say, well, why did God even provide a command? Because listen to me, you can't know love without choice. Because anybody who's ever been in a love relationship recognizes that love causes me to constrain myself for the benefit of somebody else. So in essence, 
It was the opportunity for us because how do humans show love for God? God showed love by giving us all of this amazing stuff. But how were we to show love for God? By our willingness to constrain ourselves for his sake. But you see, what did humans choose? Humans chose selfishness. And we know that what? Selfishness destroys relationships, does it not? Selfishness, see, people wanted God's stuff without God. And selfishness is when I want what I want, it doesn't matter about anybody else. So this is what we need to understand. Listen to me. True freedom is found under Christ's authority. When Jesus showed up on the scene, the new covenant, he began to make hints of this. The Gospels make clear that what Jesus was tempting to do was bring about something brand new that never existed before. He gave hints to this end by saying things like this. You've heard it once said, but I say unto you. Jesus would talk about a kingdom and a church that he would begin to build. Because in essence, Jesus said this, in my kingdom, that the greatest among you would be determined so through their service. In other words, great people would go to the back of the line and push others forward. That, in the, that the greatness of the kingdom would be shown in how much of our life we can give away. How much we can use to benefit others. So the ethic of this kingdom that the very underlying position became the overarching reality of what it was all about because when Jesus instituted the new covenant, he did so on a night when they were remembering something old. But he came to bring a new definition, a new meaning to it. Because on the night what we call the Last Supper, they were experiencing a Passover meal together with his disciples. And what was the Passover to the Jewish faith? It was the remembrance of God leading the people of Israel out of the slavery and captivity of Egypt. So that night when Jesus sat down, he said, tonight I make a new covenant with you. Which is amazing. Here's what, it, what confuses me as a Christian. Why people in Christ would attempt to go back to live under something old when there's something new? See, my wife and I sold our house in 2020. And guess what? In 2021, we bought a new house. And what does that mean? I don't go and live in my old house. Why? Because that's my old house. I have a new house. I go home and live in my new house. And this is so confusing to people that why you don't understand that there is a new covenant, that there is a new reality. And on that night, Jesus said, listen, the bread that you used to mean this. Why did they eat unleavened bread? Because it was given to the people of Israel as a remembrance that they were leaving in haste. They didn't have time for the bread to rise with yeast. That they were to make it quickly because why? God was moving to bring his people out. They were to remember the cup which represented the blood of a lamb that Moses had given instruction that they were to take the lamb's blood, put it on the door, and that all of the chaos that would bring their freedom, they would, be, it would pass over them. They were freed from that. Now, Jesus said, the bread I give you, break, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. He took the cup and said, now, this is the new covenant in my blood. It is shed for the remission of sins. He gave new definition, new meaning to something because he created something brand new. Christians realized that this was God's fulfillment 
of his promise to Abraham. God had told Abraham, through your seed, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. So they were looking, and Jesus came in fulfillment as the Messiah, the one that they had waited for, the one that they had been held waiting for them to come. And now he had come. Now he had fulfilled the law of Moses in its entirety and brought about something new. And on that night, he gave the conditions of the new covenant. He said, I give you this new command. Love one another as I have loved you. So he gives us an understanding. This is back to the Garden of Eden. One command, total freedom. But allow this command to be the overarching ethic and the standard of what you're called to live by. So in essence, now, Jesus said, everyone will know you're my follower. By what? He said, if you love one another as I have loved you, all men will know you're my disciples by the love you have one to another. So in other words, people would see how much we love God by how much we love people around us. This was the thing. And see, Jesus in the new, he said, listen, I'm going I'm to raise the bar. Whereas the golden rule before said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus said, I'm going to take it one step further. I want you to love other people as I have loved you. Demonstrating it the night in which he, that he instituted it by washing all of their feet, something they thought far below him. But then the next day, demonstrating in a way that would take their breath away because it took his breath away. He would lay down his life to make it a possibility for you and I. This was the standard. This was the ethic of the new covenant. This is what the apostles drill down into. So Paul, now, so much of what's written in the New Testament is helping people to understand what does this look like in real time? And Paul goes to this issue where he starts in 1 Corinthians 8. Now regarding your question about food that's been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. So Paul's about to say, hey, listen, this is an issue that's happening right now among the people. Why are you guys arguing about something? You say that I have knowledge, and you're talking about this because why? There were certain people that believed that if food had been sacrificed to an idol, no way could you touch it. Other Christians were going, listen, if I buy this in the marketplace and I bless it and sanctify it according to the word of God, I don't really care where it was done because God created it. So it was creating strife and tension. And you think about it, are we in that place today? Oh, come on, just talk about masks or vaccines. Whoops, we've gone into dangerous waters. But you talk about small wars being won because some people say, no, my freedoms, no, my things. But no, what Paul's saying, he says what? We all have knowledge about this issue, but what? But knowledge makes us feel important. It is love that strengthens the church. Do you know where small wars are fought over opinions, personal convictions, and ideas that they, no, this is right, no, this is wrong, no, this is right, no, this is wrong. Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. You guys realize that knowledge actually leads to pride? And pride leads to strife, and that weakens the church. But if you're led by love, love leads to unity, and unity strengthens the church. You and I need to realize that the ethic for which we are to live by is not allow our personal convictions, our personal ideas about life to create strife, but to live in the freedom and liberty of love. Because what is the constraint of freedom for a Christian? Love. 
The question, what does love? Because love does no ill to its neighbor. Love thinks of others before itself. And that's why Paul went on to say, he said, because he talks about this in real time. What does freedom look like? He, he says, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. In other words, just because I can doesn't mean I should. Just because I can eat anything I want to eat doesn't mean I should. Not if I want to live long enough to see my kids get married. Right? Don't we know that there are things we should constrain ourselves from? You know, but listen, all of the gray areas, people get into small wars about. What are, what are wars fought in churches about? Dress, music, right? People get into all sorts of, how about these three hot topics? Drinking, smoking, and gambling. When there's not a whole lot of scripture about these ends, but the question is, what does love do? Like example, can you turn to a scripture and say, brother, you're sinning if you're smoking. Now some people would think so, because you've been raised in a rare religious church, and that was one of the big do nots, right? You know it's easier to live as a legalistic Christian? Because you just got your bunch of rules. But that all leads to self, that all of that leads to self-righteousness. No, I'm a good because I don't. Why are we known for what we do not do versus what we really do? Because the question of freedom is, what are, you, what are you free from? But more importantly, what are you free for? Amen. To live for yourself? To live a self-indulgent life? I'm free! No. Is that what it really means? No, not according to Christ. Because you and I need to realize the restraint of our freedom is love. So you ask somebody to smoke, you say, well, well hey, well, if your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, is that the right thing to do? If you want to be around for a long time, go and do. But here's the point. I don't need to judge you. I need to live my life according to how the Spirit leads me. I don't need to be living my life judging everybody else around me instead of looking in the mirror and realizing I'm responsible to follow God from me. Those are where small wars are fought. And he's like, listen, guys, love builds up. Knowledge, strife, it breaks up. And no, we're called to be unified. He says, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. He goes on to say, don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. Because why? That's what love does. What you need to understand is this. The gospel gives us the power to love others more than ourselves. See, love isn't about what I want. Love isn't about what I feel I have the right to. Love is about what can I do to make available to other people around me. In other words, will I use my freedom as an opportunity to create somebody else's weakness or, you know, I'm free, so just get over it, bro. No, the Bible tells us that we, because listen, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13. It's an exercise I encourage people to do. I did this years ago. God's love is defined for us most succinctly and most clearly in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. But I love the amplified version of it. So look at just one verse out of this. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, same letter, talking about the love of God. Because if we've been born of God, we've been born of love. The love of God is in us. He said, love is not conceited, arrogant, and inflated with pride. Unless it's at the grocery store and you're behind somebody who seems to you like a pain in the rear end, okay? Love is not conceited, arrogant, or inflated with pride. It is not rude, unmannerly, and does not act unbecomingly. See, we can all sing about it. You know what I was amazed at? When I was a new Christian, 
okay? I went to this big Christian event down in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And you know what? The doors would open in the auditorium because, I mean, less than 15,000, 20,000 people came to this event. But the doors would open at 7 a.m. in the morning. But we were hungry for God. I was young. We got up at 5 a.m. to go there and wait in line to open the doors, okay? But one morning, my friend and I, we, we, we slept just a little bit longer, so we didn't get to the auditorium at 5. We got there at 5.30. We're like, oh, man, we're going to be way back in line. But it's okay, dude. We are just, like, enjoying life. Come around the corner, and somebody comes out from the convention center, the Tulsa Convention Center, and says, hey, would you guys like to come in? I'm like, is that legal? <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, dude, you can come down. Just go and sit down wherever you want to. Just have a seat. I'm like, Cool. Because we're like, go in there, let's have our prayer time, let's just read our Bibles, let's enjoy this. I'll never forget this, because I went down, just kind of sat down front. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And all of a sudden, 7 a.m., the doors open. I'll never forget this. All of a sudden, all of these people start pushing and shoving. Now, this is a Christian event, okay? Shoving each other, trying to get their own seats. And then, half hour later, I love you with the love of the Lord. I'm like, are you kidding me? But yeah, that's the people, because what? He says, love does not act unbecomingly. Love, God's love in us, does not insist on its own rights or its own way. Why? Because it's not self-seeking. It's not touchy, fretful, or resentful. It takes no account of an evil done to it. Excuse me? Let me read that one again. Takes no account of an evil done to it. Pays no attention to a suffered wrong. You see, the understanding of God's love is in us. The truth is this. Love, let me, add, let me put it succinctly, love is considerate. What do I mean by that? It means that it thinks of others before it thinks of itself. It doesn't demand its own rights or its own way. It's considerate. Can I give you an example of this? During my sabbatical, I went away for a program out of state for, over, for, for like 30 days, for over a month, okay? I went to this program. And in this program, I was given a roommate. Okay, so I'm meeting my roommate for the first time, and my roommate says to me, do you snore? I'm like, whoa, okay, whoa. And he starts laying out the rules. He's like, listen, I go to bed earlier on this side. You know, I need my sleep. He's going through all this stuff, right? And he gets up later. So I'm like, whoa, okay, what am I going to do? Was it my room as well? Did I, have a, did, I, did I have a right to demand what I want? But the question I asked myself, what does love require of me? So you know what happened? I let him go to bed at night. Whenever you, I don't know, 8.30, 9 o'clock, I don't go to bed till after 11 usually. So you know what I did? I went out to the big, big house area, read, did some things, just enjoyed my time. I came home. I didn't walk in the place, flip on the lights and do it. What I did, I came in real quietly, snuck kind of in, went in, turned to flip the light on in the bathroom. Well, a couple days later, he says to me, dude, can you not flip the light on in the bathroom? You're waking me up. So what did I do? Argue back? No, what are you, a selfish butt? No. What did I do? I came in with my phone. I didn't turn on the flashlight, I just hit the front to give me enough light to get in, to take my clothes off, to go to bed. Now, he got up a lot later than me. Me, my early morning hours is sacred time for me. That's my time with God. That's my time of intimacy. So you know what I decided? I'm not going to get up and wake him up in the morning. I'm going to have my fellowship time with God right here in bed. And I had glorious fellowship. Because you know what I realized? You can be loud or you can be quiet. It doesn't really matter. Communion and fellowship with God is intimate. And I had amazing times. Now, you ask me the question, did I have to do that? In one side, no. But what did love require of me?
See, love is about what you do. See, it's all great to sit in this room talk about, oh, yeah, I love you, brother, till you're pulling out of the parking lot and somebody cuts you off. <laughs> till you're waiting in line at the cafe and someone's like, are they not going to get this moving? I can't, don't they realize I got time? Okay, it's like, what? No. Love is about what you do. And here's the truth of Scripture. Love can grow. Okay, but to grow it, you have to exercise it. It's like a muscle. Okay? And it's about what you do. So when's the last time we've gone out of our way to do something for somebody else, never looking for anything in return? What do we do? In fact, here's a way to exercise love. How about doing something somebody else's way instead of demanding your way? Because you know, most of the stuff we squabble about, fight about, is about personal preferences. It's about opinions. You know, think about married couples. A lot of stuff that you guys argue about. Well, you know, I was raised, we did things in my household this way, and this is just the right way because you're just wrong and you need to do it my way. But when's the last time we go out of our way to do something somebody else's way? Because guess what? It really is about opinions, preferences, and our own personal desires. So one of the ways we can exercise love is to go out of our way on behalf, how about this one? What do you do with your time? Think about that. Do you ever take some of your time to go out of your way to serve other people? Or do you come into this, just take Sunday mornings. Do you come into this place always expecting everybody else to serve you, take care of you so you can have an amazing experience with God? Have you ever given back? Have you ever used your time to serve someone else? Just saying, sorry, I don't mean to mess. But how about this one? How about your talents? God gave you talents. Are your talents just about you going out, making a career, making money for yourself? Have you ever thought about using your talents and giving them back to God to say, hey, listen, I'm, you, I'm willing for a period of this time, a little bit of this area, to give you my talents to leverage to build your kingdom? When's the last time we do that? Or how about this one? You want, to, want me to get really sensitive? What about your money? Is it my money? How dare you even talk to me about this? I knew it. We shouldn't have come to church today. No, we're talking about, is it my money or did God give us everything? And when we give something back to him, we do so out of love. Listen, if you give out of legalistic ends, it doesn't work the same way. Because love is the most generous thing of all. When I met Kath, I never had any thought about spending money. It was no big deal because guess what? I loved her and it was all worth the investment. And in case you haven't realized, I've been practicing last week's sermon all week. But guess what? No, sorry. No, no, no. Here's the truth. We can light, you got to lighten it up. Every talk about money, you got to lighten it up. But here's the last time. Is it something we've ever thought about? What can I do with a portion of what he gave me to make a difference in the lives of others? See, love is about what you do with what you have. It's how you exercise it. Because greatness, according to Jesus, isn't about what you have. It's how much of it you can give away. How much of your life can you invest into others, helping other people more than you help yourself. Because if we truly trust God, it's not about what I have. God is more than willing to provide richly in all things. But when we're generous, what we discover is this, you can't outgive God. God is so amazing, but if you can have wrong motives, oh, I'm going to give so I can get more. No, no, love just says, hey, listen, I'm here to leverage what I have. Because listen to me, this is the truth that you know to understand. Love is not a weakness, it's a strength that seeks to leverage it for the benefit of others. Love's not a weakness. Laying aside my rights, my opinions, my ideas for the sake of peace and harmony and working through with somebody else, that's not a weakness, that's a strength. 
Because you know what? Truly strong people are ones that use their strength to benefit others. Truly strong people are not just selfish people that just use their strength for themselves. Not according to God. That's weakness spiritually. Because you know true maturity is, is measured in Scripture by how much we love. That's the measure of Christian maturity. How much are we like Jesus? And so in essence, true strength is that, see, when you have it, you're willing to use it on behalf of other people. It's kind of like this misunderstanding of privilege. If you've ever been having a situation where you have had privilege, privilege is designed to use it on behalf of others. Example, have you ever been a leader? You ever been, you've been you know, you're head of an organization or something? That privilege is to benefit and serve the people under you, according to Jesus. Because why? The greatest among you is servant of all. So that means eat, leaders eat last. See, the, the misuse of privilege is when you're using it. So, oh, I have a title. I have a name. So that means I can go first in line. I can get there before all the other people are going to come and take everything I want. You, you talk about this, just, just look at a Christian event when there's food involved. Are you kidding? Thank God they're butter knives because they, if they were sharpened, we would kill one another. No, how about, listen, if two people, listen, if two people married ever began to say, hey, listen, we started living for what can benefit you, not what I want, not demanding my right or my way. If two people lived that way, you know what they would experience? They would experience a little heaven on earth. They would experience, because the truth is, when you're a community of people, when people are going out of their way to serve other people and love other people, that's something that's so intoxicating. Where do you find that on the planet? But this was the overarching reality of what Jesus said should identify his people. So what constrains our freedom? Only one thing, love. You see, love builds bridges. Love is now, you know, Paul said, I become all things to all men so that by that I may save some. See, when I was younger in my faith, I had to, I had to absolutely disconnect from culture because all of it meant things to me. I remember when I first became a Christian, okay, and in my start, I was, I was sent out to Ohio to be trained as an agent for, for you know, a month. I had to spend a month out in Ohio. But back then, you know, the other guys that were in the thing were like, hey, come do this with us, come do that with us. I was so broken when I got saved, I needed to detach from culture and get healthy. But my detachment from culture was my immaturity. What we haven't learned is that Christian maturity is the ability to navigate culture and not get caught up in it. Do you realize this? We think that, oh, I'm holy because I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do this. You know, I don't, I don't smoke, I don't, I don't drink, I don't chew, and I don't hang around with girls who do. In other words, in other words we think that this how is somehow a, a commentary on how spiritual we are. No, sometimes it may just be a commentary on how much we need to still grow. Because Jesus said you're to be in the world, just not of it. What we have mixed up the fact is that too often the church is not in the world, but it's totally of it. Because it has all the jealousy, all the, all the, the pettiness, all the, all the stuff that creates harm, you know, disharmony and stuff. No, 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 no. Growth and maturity is about how much love. Because listen, I don't look to see how building bridges, I listen to Kanye West. Why? Because my kids listen to Kanye West. So I listen to Donda. And some of y'all looking at me going, no way, not my pastor. <laughs> Oh, yeah, somebody's going to jail tonight. Yeah, no, <laughs> but, God, but God's going to pay my bail tonight. So, should I? so, no, 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 here's the point. You build bridges 
So what? For the purpose of Christ. If you're so hung up on how self-righteous you are, you just become more and more alienated from a culture that desperately needs to know because the overarching ethic of the kingdom that Jesus said is to love others as I have loved you. So this is where I want to end today. Listen to me. He says this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Two simple things that should guide us. Is what I want to do, is it something that truly glorifies God? And secondly, he said, don't give offense to the Jews, Gentiles, or church of God. In other words, guys, the word offense there literally came from the Greek. It meant don't bait a trap. Why have we used our Christian freedom when you see brothers and sisters that don't understand where you're coming from and you could care less how it impacts and affects them? That's selfishness. That's not freedom. Consideration is considering the people that you're with. So guess what? Say somebody struggled with, their, with, with drinking, and now I'm going to let my freedom just do something in front of them that creates a stumbling block or an opportunity to embody them. Would I use my freedom in a way that hurts somebody else? That's a misuse. He said, don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. Paul said, I too try, try, try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what's best for me. Notice this. I don't just do what's best for me. I do what's best for others so that they may be saved. So here's the question I want us to ask. If you've not been paying attention today, if you've been surfing the internet, if you've been buying stuff on eBay, I just need your undivided attention for just a moment. Because if you missed everything else I said today, it's all for this moment. Just one simple question I want us to learn to ask ourselves. Because here's the point. Our freedom is only limited by one simple question we need to ask ourselves. What does love require of me today? Imagine if you asked that question in your marriage. Imagine if you asked that question in your family. Imagine if you asked that question in your workplace, in your school, or wherever in your community. Imagine if you just began to ask yourself the question, what does love require of me? So in the Old Testament, they ask the question, what does the law require of me? In modern day religious circles, people ask, what does the Bible require of me? But no, 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 no. If you're a New Testament follower of Jesus, it's far more simple. What does love require of me? That's the simple truth. Because here's the point. When you and I allow love to be the point that guides us and leads us, because that's what Jesus believed. That's what Jesus understood and knew, that this would make the difference. Because why? This changes everything. You, when it comes to religion, you may know, not know what to do. You may not know what to believe. You may not know what, who to believe. But one thing you can always be assured of, you will always know what is love asking of me. And so if we get this right, it changes everything. It did once, it can again. Think about this, the church having no authority, no military, not only survived the Roman Empire, but thrived. Without influence, without money, they just went about with this simple understanding. How can we go about loving other people as Jesus loved us? And it changed everything. If it did once, it can do it again. If you're a follower of Jesus, this isn't an issue of opinion. This really is a requirement because the master said the one condition of this new covenant is to love as he loved. So this isn't an option, but imagine with me. 
If you just went out and asked yourself the question and began to guide your life daily by the question, what does love require of me today? What difference might it make in your marriage? What difference might it make in your family? What difference might it make in your community? What difference might it make in every situation you find yourself in? Guys, this matters huge. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father in heaven, grant us the ability today to embrace this truth, to not allow it to be offensive, but to recognize it came to set us free. Free from all the constraints, all the things that sin once held us in bondage to. But now in Christ, we have been set free. Because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. We're not free to indulge our flesh, but free to love as Christ loved. Free to serve as Christ served. Free to allow you to use our lives in ways that make a difference in the world. So Lord, let love fill our hearts to the place that we learn to rely on, trust in, and follow its dictates. To know that love really does. It's the only command. All the other moral commandments that the Old Testament ever gave, Father, is fulfilled in this one. That if we love like Jesus, we would never do anything to harm anyone else or ourselves. So help us to walk in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free.